0: Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Whitney Biennial in New York reviewed a look at the Afro-Atlantic Histories Exhibition at the National Gallery of Art in Washington and one of Raphael's final works in a blockbuster in London. Quiet as it's kept, the 80th edition of the Whitney Museum of American Arts Biennial is now open to the public, and you can hear the thoughts of our team in New York on the long-awaited exhibition. As the latest incarnation of the show Afro Atlantic Histories opens at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC, I speak to its curator, Kenitra Fletcher, about the museum's approach to this complex subject. And the long planned and pandemic postponed Raphael Exhibition is finally opened at the National Gallery in London. So for this episode's work of the week, I speak to Tom Henry. Henry. Henry, one of the curators of the show, about the self-portrait with Giulio Romano, one of the Renaissance master's final paintings, completed in the year of his death, 1520. Before all that, the latest series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues with in-depth conversations with artists about their influences and cultural experiences. The latest episode is A Brush With Cornelia Parker, ahead of her Tate Britain retrospective opening next month. So subscribe wherever you get your podcast to hear that and all 40 of the conversations in the back catalogue. Do also subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Whitney Biennial opened to the public in New York this week and as ever has prompted a wealth of discussion about both the art and the institution as unionised workers at the museum protested administrators' slowness in contract negotiations at the VIP opening of the show. The Art Newspaper's Associate Editor Tom Seymour was joined by Art America's editor Ben Sutton and staff reporter Gabriella Angeletti in our New York office to discuss it.
1: So the 80th edition of Whitney Biennial opens in New York to the public uh, this week. It's one of the biggest events in contemporary art in America and in the world, but it's also been a lightning rod for controversy over the last few years. Ben Sutton, do you want to talk about the role that the Whitney plays for, for contemporary art in America and also why it's been so controversial recently?
2: Sure. So like you said, the Whitney Biennial has been taking place every two years. This one has been delayed by a year. So the last one was actually in 2019. Um, And it really does serve in a lot of ways as this kind of bellwether moment for uh, American contemporary art. It's when you really sort of see trends coalescing and um, you really get to sort of take the temperature of what artists are doing, what they're thinking about and what curators see as uh, important in the current discourse. So this edition, which is titled Quiet As It's Kept, uh, has been curated by David Breslin and Adrian Edwards, who are both uh, on staff at the Whitney, and it features 63 artists and collectives, and it spans both the fifth and sixth floors of the Whitney with some other site-specific works sprinkled throughout and then a, a video installation on the ground floor. Um, but really, the bulk of it is, is focused on, on the fifth and sixth floors, and it's really, um, I would say, it's a pretty great biennial.
1: So 63 different artists are uh, showing. It's over two floors, as, as you mentioned. Gabi Angeletti, was it good? Was it bad? What did you sort of take from this? What kind of work is, is being shown here? What are the sort of trends that you spotted from this biennial?
3: I thought the biennial was very well organized um, as far as the exhibition layout. One thing that I did notice, because I cover a lot of Indigenous issues for the art newspaper is that um, Indigenous artists were given really prominent space in the show. Um, one recurring comment that I noticed from Indigenous critics in the 2019 biennial was that Indigenous artists were not given as much space as, um, say, Black or non-BIPOC artists. They were sort of relegated to uh, corners of the show. So Indigenous artists really occupy a lot more space, even though there is fewer indigenous artists participating in this biennial um there are four versus i think around eight in the previous version they're definitely given a lot more attention
1: ben do you want to just talk us through what you made of the curation given there's 63 different artists and given um there's a lot of different mediums at play here and a lot of different like multi-generational artists on display Mm -hmm. how do they organize that
2: I think the curators have done a very good job of of organizing the show. It's a little more heavy-handed than your typical Whitney Biennial is structured, but they've really created these two very distinct environments. So the fifth floor is kind of this light-filled space. There are no sort of floor-to-ceiling walls. Everything is hung on these kind of freestanding partitions. So there's a lot of light. All the walls are white. All the supports are white. It's it's very, this kind of luminous An expansive space, and then you go up to the sixth floor, and that space is completely dark. It's a series of nooks and antechambers with black painted walls and black carpeting on the floor. So it just creates this very kind of claustrophobic sense of space. And like I said, it's a little heavy-handed, but I think it works. And I think, honestly, like most Whitney Biennials are kind of under curated in this regard. There's a little too little thought put to kind of how the works interact and what the experiences of moving through the space. I think, yeah, I think David Breslin and Adrian Edwards have done a really nice job of of really putting a lot of thought into how the works are in dialogue with each other and how you're kind of experiencing them as a suite of works.
1: On the sixth floor, there was a lot of video work. And it felt to me that even though video art has been, you know, around for 50 or 60 years or more, this biennial felt like a sort of coming of age for video art, like, you know, they're really establishing video art in the mainstream as almost the most significant medium on display. Do you have any thoughts about what you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think they've done a really good job with video art. Um, I I think, to your point, you know, I think video art and maybe kind of abstraction, broadly speaking, are really the two strong suits of this biennial. And in terms of video art, you're right. I mean, I think past editions of the Whitney Biennial, both in its its current building, this is the, the third biennial in their new building, and even in editions that happened in the Breuer building on Madison Avenue, video art was always pretty poorly integrated and it was always kind of in an awkward alcove or it was only shown during special screenings or it was on a tiny monitor with one set of headphones. It was never really given pride of place. And I think in this biennial, they've really nailed it. I mean, every video work has the room to breathe. There's occasionally kind of like some sound that leads into the next room. But like, by and large, I think they've done a fantastic job of really giving video the the space and time because some of them are, you know, over an hour long that they require.
1: And Gabby, did you feel that this was a commercial show? Did you feel there's a lot of um, on-trend artists that are very popular in the private gallery sector? There's been a lot of figurative art over the years. Did you see much figurative art in this show?
2: Do you
3: feel connected to the market? There were very few on-trend artists, very few artists that I guess everyone would recognize, very few household names. Alex DeCorte was one of them. His video on the sixth floor is almost an hour long. And I think um, his video, along with all the other videos on that floor, take a more dystopian, mad quality. Whereas maybe the videos on the fifth floor are a little bit more um, leaning on politics and the events that have happened over the last two years.
1: Did you feel a lot of the work on the show here did confront social movements and protest and, and the sort of political events that we've seen and been uh, witness to over the last couple of years during the pandemic, maybe? Did, did it feel very connected to the here and now to you? Uh,
2: it did to me, yeah. I mean, I think some of the work is referencing current politics more overtly than some of the others. Um, You know, there's a lot of artists kind of coming at issues of politics and identity and displacement through abstraction. And I think that's like one of the really powerful kind of through lines of this biennial. But yeah, I think there are also some artists who are just coming straight out and, and addressing current political issues pretty overtly. I mean, I think we'll get into this later, but there's an Alfredo Yar video that is basically just protest footage, so it doesn't get much more direct than that. Personally, one of my favorite pieces in the biennial is um, is another piece that, you know, engages politics pretty directly, but it's this massive Ferris wheel made out of prison furniture. It's a piece called The Clockwork by Sable Louise Smith. I mean, A, it's just huge, so it's very hard to miss, but it also has this, it sort of hits you twice, where, you know, first it just registers as a very large piece of art um, and this kind of riff on a on a somewhat playful structure that we're used to encountering at, you know, the circus or at a fair. And then when you realize what it's made of these these aluminum tables and chairs that are typically um, used in prison visiting rooms. And it becomes this kind of very dark work about, you know, the American prison system and, and its many, many problems and how we sort of essentially exploit incarcerated people in the U.S. To me, that was far and away one of the most powerful works in the show.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't actually recognize what the sculpture was at first. It was compelling. But then when I read into it, I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of genius. Were you, were you familiar with the artist prior to this?
2: Yeah. She's been a rising force for a little while now and um, has done previous work dealing with mass incarceration and, and prison furniture uh, as a kind of material. So wasn't entirely new, but it's, it's kind of at a, at a totally different scale and at a, a really high level, I think.
1: Were you particularly struck, Gabby, by any of your works on show? Um, were there any new artists that you hadn't heard of before that you, you, know, you, you saw their work and thought, wow, this is absolutely incredible?
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think this overarching curatorial attention to abstraction and conceptualism made it easier to approach works that, you know, are just visually really captivating and then, you know, kind of like digging deeper into them. For example, uh, Danny Whitehawk's Abstract Geometric Tapestry has a lot of aesthetic crossover with James Little's Abstract Canvases, um, One Floor Below That. And Dwayne Linklater, another um, who is a Cree artist, uh, he created a series of abstract canvases that on, stand alone on its own as very beautiful. When you dig deeper, it actually has a lot to do with his cultural heritage.
1: I was really struck on the sixth floor. The first thing you see when you, when you emerge onto the sixth floor is two massive abstract paintings by um, Denise Tomasos. And she speaks about this kind of permanent sense of chaos, the intensity of of events that are impossible to represent in the world at large. And, you know, it reminded me of of Jackson Pollock, who is on the seventh floor in A Permanent Connection, and he was in the Whitney at the start of his career. And he, you know, his art came out of a kind of crisis in in arts ability or figurative arts ability to really contend with the enormity of events in the world. And I felt there was a really interesting actual sort of dialogue and relationship between some of the themes that you saw in a permanent collection and in this biennial, which is obviously very, very contemporary work. Ben, was there anything else that you were really taken with from other mediums, maybe?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gabby mentioned this earlier, but the um, the Alex de Corte video uh, on the fifth floor, which is called Roy G. Biv, it's an hour long, from 2022. And it's just one of the few kind of humorous works in this biennial. I think kind of like to the points we've been making, it is a pretty serious and heavy biennial. And that is one of the few works that has kind of a dose of humor in it. And it's this video in which Alex de Corte, who's based in Philadelphia, plays Marcel Duchamp and then plays Marcel Duchamp's alter ego, Rosé La Vie, and then plays Marcel Duchamp dressed as the Joker from the 1989 Batman movie, and then plays a Constantin Brancusi sculpture from the Philadelphia Museum of Art collection, kind of brought to life, and sings a song. And it's just this really kind of like madcap surrealist piece, but really like the execution of it, the production quality is just phenomenal. Um, Just like really technically impressive. And and like I said, like a, a very welcome dose of humor and whimsy in a biennial that at times does feel very, very rough.
1: And I, I thought it was interesting that there was ready-made art close by to that uh, installation. And there was creative salvage. There was a, uh... You know, a lot of artists are using everyday objects to make quite political points. So to have that conversation or, or have it in dialogue with someone paying tribute to Marcel Duchamp was a very interesting and a, and a sort of like a marker of the quality of the curation here. Um, Gabby, anything that you didn't like, anything you thought was lacking, anything you uh, felt was, was not quite as good here? What could it have done more of?
3: Not that there was anything uh, lacking, but I thought that one thing that was surprising was um, how little the biennial dealt with, for example, the BLM protest and coronavirus. There was one video by Alfredo Yar that dealt with the Black Lives Matter protest in D.C. that was shown in its own dedicated space. It was, I think, a major point of the biennial for a lot of people. It definitely has a very visceral effect when you're in there. Uh, There's booming flash grenades going off and you really do feel like you're there. And um, I think it's important to note that this is the only video work that's presented in its own dedicated closed-off space other than um, Lucy Raven's work, which shows the, the construction of a mine and also deals with destruction.
1: Ben, you had your issues with, with this piece of work about the Black Lives Matter process. Do you want to just talk us through what, what were your concerns there?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, to Gabby's point, it is a very kind of viscerally powerful work. I mean, you know, it is, it's installed in its own room. You can't really access it once it's begun, so you really have to be in there for the whole experience. And there are these very powerful fans mounted to the ceiling, and so when there is footage on the screen... Of helicopters kind of bearing down on Black Lives Matter protesters uh, in D.C. in the summer of 2020, the fans kind of kick into high gear, and you're sort of blown about in, in this pretty striking way. And, and certainly in the moment, while I was watching it, I was engrossed. But kind of the more I thought about it, the less it felt like it was doing anything with that footage. You know, this is footage that we all saw on Twitter and Instagram and the news at the time, and it certainly kind of had a visceral impact then, but to see it now two years later and without really anything added to it I don't know for me it just didn't do anything and it sort of spoke to what I think is like a a frequent pitfall of of art that really is like directly taking footage and and really directly addressing kind of contemporaneous protest movements is that it's really hard to just transcend that footage because it's so powerful to begin with to me it just really didn't add anything and the effect of the the wind though kind of gripping in the moment didn't Like, add to my understanding of those protests.
1: I think it's an interesting point. I was really engrossed by it. One thing that I would say about the the Biennial as a whole is that, you know, they started to curate this in 2019. Um, They obviously chose a lot of the artists throughout the course of the pandemic. A lot of the work was created throughout the course of the pandemic. But there's very little reference to conflict or war, actually, in this show. But the global news agenda over the last few months has been driven by Ukraine and, and Afghanistan which makes me wonder how contemporary contemporary art is anymore. You know, this is supposed to be the agenda-setting pinnacle of contemporary art, but it's not really contending with the ever-changing, fast-moving news cycle. Mm -hmm. Is that that a fair thing to say, do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I think the Alfredo Yar video is is kind of the one exception to that. There's one photo installation by um, Buck Ellison that kind of obliquely references the Afghan war. It's this series of photos where he's imagining what the founder of Blackwater, the paramilitary firm, was up to uh, in 2003, which is the year that that company got its first contract to work in Afghanistan. But again, that's, to your point, that's like a pretty oblique reference to the current conflict. So yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I guess my rebuttal would be that, you know, when artists are very directly engaging with the politics of the moment, it doesn't always work, <laughs> hence the Alfredo Yar piece. But that's that's my personal beef.
1: The uh, Whitney Biennial over the years has sometimes attracted controversy beyond the art installed. And this year, there were some issues at the VIP opening. Gabby, you covered that for the Art Newspaper. can you talk us through what was happening there with the union protests?
3: Basically, the Whitney employees are trying to unionize. They have been trying to do this for very long and claim that they haven't really received any direct response from museum leadership. The Whitney counters that claim. But um, overall, it was a really peaceful protest. They were just handing out leaflets to um, some of the people that were attending the VIP preview. I think everyone, all the VIPs were pretty receptive to their message. There was no major eruption of conflict. And I think it's just a matter of time before the Whitney follows suit with the rest of American museums that have unionized.
1: And so to round off, Ben, should everyone go to see this and how much time should they give to this? I mean, are we talking about repeat trips back or
2: can you do it in a space of a day? I think you need multiple visits for better and for worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think this is the best Whitney Bainille I've seen in at least a decade. I mean, it's it's, I think, really, really good. But yeah, to your point, I mean, once you add up all the videos, you're talking like, you know, easily a day of just sitting watching videos, I think. So definitely budget multiple visits if you can.
1: Ben, Gabby, thanks very much for your time today, um, and I hope everyone enjoys the Whitney Biennial. Thanks, Dan.
3: Thank you.
0: The Whitney Biennial continues until the 5th of September. You can read more about the show, including Ben Sutton's detailed analysis of its strands and themes, at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can download from the App Store or Google Play. Coming up, Canitra Fletcher on Afro-Atlantic histories in DC, and I talked to Tom Henry about one of Raphael's last paintings. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused the cost of international shipping to skyrocket. As Kabir Jala writes, oil prices last month reached their highest in 14 years as NATO countries vowed to wean themselves off Russian energy by the end of the year, causing extreme market volatility. This, combined with the inability to fly over Russia and Ukraine's vast combined airspace, has made shipping art overseas, in particular between Europe and Asia, much more expensive. And major fares in Asia are expected to be hit hard. Edouard Gouin, the co-founder of Com- Convelio, a fine art shipping logistics company, says that a Chinese client was recently quoted $58,000 to send a container to Northern Europe by a competitor. This journey, he says, would have cost around $3,000 in recent years. A drawing newly attributed to Michelangelo will go under the hammer at Christie's Paris next month with an estimate in the region of 30 million euros, the auction house says. As Gareth Harris writes, nude young man after Masaccio, surrounded by two figures has been consigned to the old masters and 19th century art, paintings, drawings and sculptures sale in Paris on the 18th of May. When the work was sold in 1907 at the Hotel Drouot in Paris, it was attributed to the school of Michelangelo. It was first recognized as a work by him in 2019 by Furio Rinaldi, then a specialist in Christie's Department of Old Master Drawings. That attribution has since been supported by Paul Joannides, the Emeritus Professor of Art History at Cambridge University. And finally, Finnish Customs have seized three shipments containing paintings and sculptures from Russian museums. As Sofia Kishkovsky reports, the works, with a total insurance value of €42 million, were held following suspected violation of sanctions connected to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was announced at a press conference in Helsinki on Wednesday. Russia's culture ministry told the official news agency TASS that the works in two of the shipments have been on loan to exhibitions in Milan and Udine in Italy and include items from the state Trechikov Gallery in Moscow and further reports suggest that the third shipment was of works from the Pushkin State Museum of Fine Arts, also in Moscow, that had been on loan to an exhibition in Japan. You can read all these stories and more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This April, explore Christie's Classic Week, a hybrid mini-series of three online sales and one live auction in New York, featuring European art, antiquities and books and manuscripts. Discover Roman glass and a life-size Egyptian cat statue, alongside ancient cameos and masterpieces by Rosa Bonheur. Browse a collection of inscribed works by Ian Fleming and dive into property from the collection of Maurice Sendak to find treasures by the brothers Grimm and Beatrix Potter. Find out more at Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, on the 10th of April, the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC opens the exhibition Afro-Atlantic Histories, a show that began its life in Brazil in 2018 before moving to the US, arriving first in Houston, Texas last year and now in Washington. It looks at the historical experiences and cultural formations of black and African people in more than 130 works of art from 17th century watercolours to numerous pieces by contemporary artists. It inevitably explores the brutality of slavery as well as liberation movements and acts Activism through multiple voices from Africa to the US, the Caribbean, South America and the wider African diaspora. In Washington, it's been organised by Kenitra Fletcher, the first ever curator of African-American and Afro-diasporic art at the NGA, with the help of two advisory groups. I spoke to Kenitra about the show, about those advisory groups and about how her role will shape the NGA's collections in the coming years. Canitra, the origins of this exhibition were in Brazil and it's come to America a couple of years later. Tell us about what the difference is between that original incarnation of the show and now.
4: Right. It started at Sao Paulo's Museum of Art in 2018. It had over 400 works shown at two venues. So right there was the first change that we had to make was we had to pare it down a bit. And so we refined the tour, making it 130 or so works The exhibition also had eight sections in Sao Paulo, and for the U.S. iteration, um, it's only six. But we chose the strongest ones that are really representative of the the complexity of the African diaspora.
0: Right. And does the orientation of the show shift now that it's based in the States? Because this obviously began in Houston last year, and it's now in Washington. Does it have more of an African-American focus?
4: There are a few more African-American pieces, but we're not thinking about it as an African-American show in any regard. I mean, one of the important points of the show is to focus on the global blackness that there is. A lot of people think about America as one of the places where the largest enslaved Africans were brought to, but in actuality, it was only about 6%. Most enslaved Africans went to South America and the Caribbean, um, especially Brazil. And we want people to think about the globality, if that's a word, of, of blackness of the African diaspora and to refocus their attention on the breadth of it. And so it was important to include American artists that would be known to our visitors, but to really uh, keep a balance throughout the show.
0: And it's called Afro-Atlantic histories. And of course, this word histories is crucial because the word Historias in Latin American, in Spanish and Portuguese, is different to the word histories in English, isn't it? We're talking in English, but it has slightly different connotations.
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. But we think it still connects to that historious idea because, it, because it's a plural word. You know, it's not saying this is Afro-Atlantic history. We're really avoiding that grand narrative or singular way of understanding the African diaspora um, that, you know, you might have been taught in school, that there are so many voices and lives and experiences that contribute to the African diaspora. We think that at least having it plural makes that point.
0: Indeed. And and tell us about the kind of ways that you illuminate those different histories because on the one hand you're dealing with works of art from the past, but also there's a lot of contemporary work and of course when you look at the breadth of contemporary work across the world and across the African diaspora, you're dealing with extraordinary range of both media and kind of ways of telling those stories effectively.
4: Right. We're, I mean, we're definitely refusing hierarchies of all kinds, and especially, like you say, of media, where it's not just painting and sculpture at all. There is a there is photography, there is textiles, performance, YouTube video is in the show. I mean, it's really a, quite a range and takes an in-depth look of all the different types of expression that contribute to the African diaspora then and now by a range of people, not just Black Afro-descendant people, but people of European descent. Because one of the points that I think it's important to drive home is how integral and uh, important Black people and Black cultures have been to the making of the modern West, of the modern world, in fact being black and being um, Western or being black and being American are not exclusive of each other. They are inextricably tied.
0: Obviously, there are historical works in this exhibition that are deeply disturbing. They're horrific, actually. How are you showing those in the museum? And to what extent do you warn your visitors in advance of seeing those images about what to expect?
4: Well, we do have some warning language on the intro text saying something like to be aware that there are you know, disturbing images of Black people that relate to the forced removal of people across the Atlantic. So we have it there in the introduction, right before you walk in, basically talking about the enslavement section, where that material is. But I think something important to think about when you see the enslavement section is that you're also always thinking about emancipation and the struggles for freedom at the same time. So we're not Necessarily looking at like victimhood, but also thinking about how enslaved Africans empowered themselves to fight for freedom since the inception of slavery.
0: Can you say in which ways you do that? For instance, give an example of the kind of artwork that actually illustrates that idea.
4: Sure. I mean, right when you enter the um, enslavement section, there's a painting by Renard, who's a French painter, who is showing an enslaved African man on board of a ship holding a club, rebelling against. The conditions, and you see this uh, sea in the background, this stormy sea that's kind of like adding to the drama of the image. And you see on the deck of the ship the leg of a white trader, presumably, who he's knocked down in an effort to free himself of this situation. And a lot of the paintings in the enslavement section are by European painters with abolitionist sentiments also. So, you know, there are two ways to look at it. There is this way of looking at them as fighting against the system of slavery, but, you know, in some respects they were also romanticizing the subjects as a way to impress upon people the humanity of enslaved people as well. So um, there's a lot of different perspectives in that section.
0: I was intrigued to read in Lilia Moritz Schwartz's essay in the catalogue that some of those images were part of sort of broader bodies of work, but they were suppressed at the time because they illuminated the brutality of slavery at that time. And therefore, the commissioners for these images wanted to suppress those images because they gave at least a hint of the horrific reality.
4: Right, exactly. And then you'll see works by like Franz Post and other artists who are trying to really romanticize the situation and conceal the horrors. The work by Franz Post, in fact, all the figures are dwarfed by the landscape. And it seems like this harmonious, bucolic scene where, you know, everybody is at peace with their situation and all in an effort or or a way to justify slavery and colonialism. And Franz Post would have been much more well-known in Holland than some of these other artists that a lot of our visitors will not know about who are European artists but these works by them haven't been seen really especially on these walls
0: Um, in that emancipation section it seems to me what you've done very effectively is shown how contemporary artists are engaging with that very subject matter and that very troubling subject matter Mm -hmm. i'm thinking particularly of of glenn ligon whose work you actually single out in your essay this work runaways which is a crucial work in glenn's oeuvre, it's just an, an extraordinary work can you tell us about that piece
4: Oh, sure. It's 10 prints. I don't know which edition we have, but it's in the National Gallery's collection. And it is a set of prints in which he asked some of his friends to describe him as if he had been kidnapped or lost and his friends needed to describe him to the police. And it's really interesting, first of all, to see all the differing descriptions of him, right? I mean, uh, there's one that says he's dark-skinned. There's one that says he's fairly light-skinned. There's one to say he's not too dark or too light. And so, you know, it's really interesting just to hear those different um, perspectives on one person right there. But then he's also using these icons that were distributed across the globe, not just America, but you also saw them used in, in Brazil as well of enslaved people that had run away and that would be printed on ad notices from the past to capture the enslaved people. It's like this temporal shift that's going back and forth. And he's thinking about ways of capturing blackness, capturing bodies through language for different purposes. And it's really, there's so many layers to the work. Absolutely. But also that work is, is juxtaposed next to a history painting of like the Fugitive Slave by John Houston, you know, the same kind of subject matter is, that's resonating with Glenn, you know, 200 years later.
0: I also wanted to talk about Nonna Fastine because she's done these extraordinary photographs. Yeah. They're self-portraits, effectively, but they're, they're the most loaded self-portraits you might ever encounter, right?
4: Right, right. Where she's basically posing and embodying that experience of so many black women during slavery of being placed on an auction block for inspection. She's standing there nude in the middle of of Wall Street, uh, making an important point that slavery existed in the North. There were slave auctions and slave markets in New York City, right at that spot where she is posing. And that's a part of the whole series. And throughout it, she's wearing these white heels. It's called the White Shoes series. And so she's really juxtaposing ideas about womanhood and what it means to be a black woman um, then and now. And then these ideals of womanhood that are, are kind of being represented by um, whiteness, by these white shoes as well. But it's a, such a brave, courageous work, you know, to stand there nude in the middle of the street, manacled, no less, and to really place yourself within that experience, um, that unknowable experience that um, she tries to really tap into and get in touch with very powerful work and I'm so pleased that we were able to show it
0: you mentioned that this is very much an exhibition about the breadth of the African diaspora or at least it begins to look at the breadth of the of the African diaspora tell us about artists from Africa who you've involved in the show
4: there are a few works by African artists. We have Gerard Sakoto, who uh, has a painting called Two Women on the Road. Um, it's just a beautiful kind of loosely painted image of muted tones that are just showing this kind of quiet everyday moment that often goes unnoticed or unaccounted for in representations of Black life. Um, It's in our everyday lives section. So in that section, we're thinking about just the moments of labor and leisure, really uh, getting into the humanity of Black life. We also have a work by, well, he spent a lot of time in D.C., but Alexander Skunder Bogosian. one of his paintings in our resistance is an activism section. Samuel Faso, the Cameroonian-born photographer who is posing as a liberated woman of the 70s. Um, a really unconventional self-portrait. He's obviously masquerading as someone else, but he's also thinking about how the black feminist uh, movement uh, resonated with him as uh, as a black African man and how those uh, movements and struggles uh, reach far and wide across the African diaspora.
0: You talked about activism and, you know, you've got a whole section effectively on on activism. That seems to me to be a really interesting contrast. As you say, there's a sort of everyday life section on the one hand, but then you've got these amazingly profound artworks which actually deal with that very head-on confrontation with inequality. So tell us about that.
4: Right. um, That's our final section, resistances and activisms. And so we're looking at how Artists have represented or participated themselves in these struggles for freedom post-abolition to make these Western ideals of liberty, equality, justice, right? And everyday reality. And so in that section, it's a wide range. It's really has an amazing amount of different types of media. That's where you see a lot of textiles, poetry and performance in this amazing video work by Victoria Santa Cruz, an Afro-Peruvian artist in which she is um, recounting her experiences as a young girl being taunted and teased and called black as though it's a slur. And then recounting her journey to uh, self-pride and empowerment and, you know, yelling out repeatedly, "See, si soy negra, yes, I am Black, over and over again. Like, yes, you know, claiming that and celebrating that um, identity. So there are those personal gestures that speak to a collective group as well. But then there are these representations of public demonstrations during the civil rights era, with the signs and demonstrations during March on Washington by Alma Thomas.
0: Yeah, that's an intriguing work, isn't it? Because you think of Alma as this great abstract painter, but that's such an intriguing and powerful work.
4: And really speaks to what an impact that day had on her, that she was like, you know, I'm not going to do my floral arrangements today. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, no, I need to document this moment that I've had um, in Washington, where she moved at a young age. You know, she spent her rest of her life after leaving Georgia in D.C. So, yeah, the impact of that day, she renders in that image. We have a work by the recent MacArthur Genius Grant winner, Daniel Lynn Ramos, and that work has been recently acquired by the gallery called Power Figure. It's this towering assemblage made of everyday objects from Louisa, his community in Puerto Rico where he's creating this figure that incorporates different materials of music and sports and construction, even Um, these materials meant to like create the community and uplift and sustain the community as well, and really communicate the power of Afro-Puerto Rican culture. It
0: sounds like such a great show. I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the organization, because I was intrigued to read that there were two advisory groups that you've worked with on the show in Washington. Right. How did that work out? How did that process work? Because it seems to me that one of the things that we learned in twenty twenty was that museums were going to change the way that they did things in relation to exhibitions about exactly this kind of material. And I wonder if this is a kind of blueprint for the museum going forward.
4: It is for definitely for this museum. There were two advisory committees, like you say, there was one that was um, an academic advisory committee that was, frankly started before I began. Um one of my co-curators, Stephen Nelson, the Dean of the Center for Advanced Studies and Visual Arts. He took it upon himself to assemble a group of leading local historians and art historians to discuss the overall concept and the content of the exhibition, to review didactic materials for sensitivity and accuracy, and to help us sort of figure out how to approach the DMV community. Sorry, the DMV community is a DC, Maryland, Virginia area, and to reach out to community colleges and universities and collaborate on, you know, programming. So that was specifically for this exhibition. But what we will be organizing for future exhibitions are community advisory groups. And Afro Atlantic Histories isn't the only show that has a community advisory group. We also have one for the Philip Guston show coming up. It's a few people from the DMV community, and then also uh, people from across departments at the museum. So curatorial, education, communications, community outreach. And so we get together, it's about 10 of us, and really think through the show, what it means, what they want to see how they want us to think about programming for it, really getting their feedback and meeting regularly to have discussions. Because we're really thinking about the museum as a focused on the visitor, right? A visitor-focused approach to our programming. So it's really been insightful to hear their opinions. So <laughs> it's exciting.
0: It, no, that is exciting. And, and obviously you started your role at the National Gallery of Art last year. And you're the first ever African-American art curator and African diaspora art, importantly. Can you say something about, you know, what that role will consist of? Are you effectively designing the role from within? Because, of course, you know, yes, you've already talked about in this conversation about key works in the collection, which are by African-American artists or African diaspora artists. But, of course, there's a historic imbalance there. To what extent are you looking to correct the historical imbalance to what extent are you looking to change the way that the museum collects going forward in terms of like contemporary work is it a multiple responsibility in that sense
4: it is it's a lot (laughs) yes i'm looking to change it to the full extent yeah no um (laughs) yes a large part of the role is Exhibitions, which I'm, you know, working on right now with Afrolandic histories, but especially acquisitions and not just necessarily contemporary works, but, um, you know, modern and contemporary works by not just American artists, but to a large extent American artists, yes. But, you know, I'm looking at a lot of artists who I feel should be in the collection, have been working for decades. I recently uh, worked on acquisitions by Betty Sarr you know we had were her in the collection but not an assemblage sculpture is important to have that is you know what she is known for and Absolutely. what she one of the media she excels in as well as Melvin Edwards uh, recently acquired a uh, Lynch fragments by him, that uh, important series of works, his most extended series of works. But yes, it's about the collection, especially, um, and thinking about how we can start to diversify and broaden how we tell the histories of art. You know, like the exhibition, there are more than one histories of art. It's more than Picasso to Rothko. You know, where so much more has happened throughout the history of of art in this nation and beyond that needs to be reflected in our galleries, because that's permanent, right? We don't deaccession at the National Gallery. When a work enters our collection, it's there forever. And so that says something important that um, needs to be said, that needs to show that there is excellence. And, you know, that's a complicated word, um, but it's used quite a bit, and, you know, but If we're talking about showing excellence, excellence is by more than white male artists. There is excellent work by all groups and that needs to be represented.
0: And of course, Washington has a such a diverse museum community and i'm wondering you know one of the things that we heard a lot about in the covid year and the and after uh, the murder of george floyd was about the community of museums and how they as a community would deal with better representation better diversity in collections etc cetera, etc cetera. there's obviously a, the smithsonian's national museum of african-american history and culture right. to what extent is there a kind of museum community response to those issues
4: Well, I will say that, you know, what we were just talking about, especially with the community groups, I mean, that is one approach that has changed, you know, I think after 2020, to think about who are the stakeholders of these museums. It's not just the people with the deepest pockets. It's the people that actually live here who are paying their taxes to support these institutions. This is their museum as well. And we have to think about their voices going forward just as much as we have with other people in leadership.
0: Well, Kanitra, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
4: Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time and having the interest to speak to me.
0: Afro-Atlantic Histories is at the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC from the 10th of April until the 17th of July. The excellent book accompanying the show also contains many works from the Brazilian incarnation as well as those in the US version. It's published by Del Monaco Books and priced $69.95 in the US, $84.95 in Canada and £51.50 in the UK. And finally, it's time for this episode's work of the week. The National Gallery in London's Raphael exhibition, originally scheduled to coincide with the 500th anniversary of the artist's death in 2020, is finally open, and it's magnificent. It's near impossible to pick a standout work from such a wealth of extraordinary pieces in the show, including dozens of drawings, his glorious tondos of the Holy Family, his later religious masterpieces, tapestries, prints, and some of the most famous portraits of the Renaissance. But Tom Henry, one of the exhibition's curators, has chosen self-portrait with Giulio romano a painting made in 1519 and 1520 and one of the final highlights in this dazzling exhibition tom we're actually in the final room of the Raphael show and it's a rather nice rhyme with early rooms in the show because there's a very early self-portrait wonderful early self-portrait but we're looking at another self-portrait but it's more than that isn't it tell us about this picture
5: Well, it really is. We're standing in front of Raphael's late self-portrait, executed within months of him dying, showing the now successful established artist uh, with his hand on the shoulder of a man in the foreground. Now, this picture has been referred to as Raphael and his fencing master, Raphael and a friend, but the proposal we're making is that this is Raphael and his anointed successor, Giulio Romano, who was a workshop pupil, and effectively that what he's doing is both establishing a degree of hierarchy and um, respective status, that the two artists are discussing something, that they're referring between them, may even be an active conferring of a black cloak upon Giulio. We know that cloak-giving was something that was done in the Renaissance to mark out a successor
0: so you say this is a sort of proposal has this been in the air for some time when did the first idea that it might be Giulio Romano come into being as it were so
5: the number of different proposals include a whole range of patrons and of artists Uh, but something has to explain the relationship and it's not a normal relationship between an artist and his patron it seems to be much more than that Uh, Now, there are early portraits of and self-portraits of uh, Giulio Romano, and comparison with those allows one to approach this idea. Raphael's image is absolutely certain uh, at this point. One of the things you see with Raphael is that his portraits are always more than just a representation of the sitters. So in this case... Raphael's right arm seems to blend into the right arm of his pupil. Now, both Raphael and Giulio Romano were right-handed artists and one of the arguments that Raphael was very actively making in this period of his career was that there might be many hands but there was only one artist, there's one style and the word mano... Uh, for hand, is also the word for style. So he is suggesting that he could literally manipulate other people into executing what he was interested in. And I view that as very much what this picture is about, a justification of his practice of delegation.
0: So it's almost like a ventriloquism we're talking about, because you can't see where Raphael's arm ends, can you? you? You see it sort of underneath the
5: arm of Romano. Exactly. I, th- I think it's no coincidence. We are meant to, to see these two forms alighting together. And a further proposal, this very much... It has great similarities to a figure in the foreground of the Transfiguration, which is Raphael's last great painting. His body was displayed underneath it after his death. And there's a figure in the foreground who does exactly this, looks back over his shoulder whilst pointing out of the picture space. And it's almost as though the two artists are in front of that picture discussing the solution that they then employ in the other picture. It's, it's layers and layers of meaning in a picture like this.
0: It's very hierarchical, isn't it? It's not a, a meeting of equals.
5: I mean, put very simply, Raphael is higher up in the composition than Giulio Romano. Exactly that. And that, in a way, was why I said in the way that I did that you have to explain uh, this grouping, it's not casual, and so you then think through what could these relationships be, who could these figures be, and if we know that this is an artist who ladles meaning onto his pictures, what might be going on, and that's why I think one could construct around this picture something that tells one so much more about the artist and his relationships and this point in his career without taking the step of assuming he knew he was about to die, because he didn't, that he might have known that he could no longer control the impetuous Giulio Romano, could no longer keep him down, you don't lose that thrust, even if you recognise that Raphael had no premonition that he would die on his 37th birthday.
0: He's very calm, isn't he? Whereas, as you say, there's an impetuousness in the very
5: movement that Romano is making. Absolutely, and it's a hard argument to make, but if you look at Giulio Romano's work, during Raphael's lifetime, and let's say under his control, to the work that immediately follows, it feels like there was a crisis, often a very creative crisis, but but an agitation that was exacerbated by Raphael's death. And we know from... Correspondence that Raphael's workshop broke up very quickly and very acrimoniously after the artist's death. In other words, he was the calming influence that kept everything together. And one of the miracles of Raphael's career is this ability to manage the disparate talents who came together in that context... And that, for me, is also very much what this exhibition is about, the idea that he could be so productive in such a short career and in so many different ways. And I would go further and say that his inspiration to us at this point in our world history is the ability of an individual and his art to create a sense of calm and serenity, and I feel that very strongly.
0: Yeah, and and that sort of calm, serenity, and yet control is present in this picture through that just very small amount of his left hand that's on Giulio Romano's shoulder there, just a very small gesture, but it's firm enough to hold him there, right?
5: Yes, to resist the impetuous nature, to adopt so... Julio names his firstborn son Raphael. Normally, in this period, you name your firstborn son your father's name, so that he effectively, by naming his son Raphael, he is almost retrospectively adopting Raphael as his father. There are descriptions that Raphael loved Julio as though he was his own son. So there's, as you say, this adoption and this paternal relationship, but not getting away from the and yes, you my lad remain just that little bit lower than me, I wish you to go far, Uh, you're achieving brilliant things, I wish to encourage all of that, but mm, not quite yet, I'm still the boss
0: There's some wonderful compositional devices that are bringing us into the picture aren't they? First of all of course, Raphael meets our gaze, but
5: of course Giulio Romano's hand reaches to us as well, doesn't it? Tell us about those devices Well, the devices are very strong, and in a way we've talked about this a little bit with the idea that they might literally be in front of the transfiguration, discussing the late insertion of this figure in the foreground uh, left of that picture, who does exactly this, points out with his right hand whilst simultaneously looking back over his right shoulder. That strikes me as quite a strong sense of what they're meant to be doing, and a recognition from Raphael that his design of big pictures at this date has become a dialogue. He really genuinely recognises Giulio as the coming force, but as all the other things too, in terms of uh, keeping somebody down and adopting and recognising all at the same time.
0: Let's talk about the extraordinary virtuosity in the language, the painted language. It's, It's wonderful in this painting which is not as colourful as so many of the wonderful things here but still to see extraordinary texture
5: wonderful texture in so many different aspects of the painting absolutely I mean visiting this exhibition you see Raphael's transition in a 20-year career from a style formed from his father Giovanni Santi and through contact with artists such as Perugino and Signorelli through a period where he's learning from Michelangelo, from Leonardo, then absorbing Venetianism uh, from Sebastiano del Piombo and others. And this picture, and in in a way the symphony of blacks, whites and greys that we get in these late portraits, very much points to what he's learnt from each of those experiences along the way and how he melds this into a style that's thoroughly his own. And, yes... He hangs here in the company of two friends and his portraits of himself and of his friends are so intimate, so engaged, so lively and, as you say, often within a range of really quite sombre colour tones where it's character and personal engagement that brings them to life.
0: Because of the reduced palette, the drawing is very evident as well, isn't it? And all the way through this show, it's that extraordinary draughtsmanship is just
5: an insistent presence in this show, which I love so much. Absolutely. Raphael's art is founded on his skills as a draftsman and once he starts to develop ideas for other artists that becomes even more the case. What I think you see though is that he is always aiming for an end product and the end product is let's call it the effortless painting but that what this exhibition shows is the amount of study and preparation that went into any of these works. So the final presentation might seem perfect, resolved, effortless, but the underlying work behind it is all there. And if I was to go further and say why Raphael for me is so great, it's that he is not the tortured lonely individual who leaves works incomplete because he was in some way dissatisfied with reaching his solution for them. Instead he is the artist who is permanently driven by uh, reaching that end goal. It's it's no less cogitated it's no less worked but he takes us to that final perfection and I appreciate that.
0: I do very much too and Lastly, of course, what you've just said is embodied in this picture, isn't it? He couldn't have produced that much without Giulio Romano and others in his studio, that he had that sort of extraordinary ability to control, to keep them all in check, to, to allow them to be productive in their own way and to
5: keep them harmonised, as you said earlier. Absolutely that. To give two other examples... Vasari describes that whenever Raphael left his home, which was a palace very unlike other artists' homes, he was accompanied by an honour guard of 50 painters and they were, of course, there, we're told, to honour him, but it's probably because he was actually providing work for that many painters and they were therefore part of the active workshop and entourage. And then when Raphael dies... There are confirmed accounts that his coffin was carried to his final burial place in the Pantheon, accompanied by 100 torch-bearing artists. And that, again, is the sense of the whole artistic community of Rome recognising that he had been their leader, effectively marginalising everybody else if you weren't in Raphael's good books, you weren't getting work, and there is that side of it too. We've painted, I hope, a correct picture of Raphael as this welcoming, encouraging, involving, enabling figure, but it is also clear that he was a controlling figure and that is perhaps a a different story for another time. (laughs)
0: Tom, thank you for telling us this one. You're welcome. Raphael is at the National Gallery in London until the 31st of July. To hear an in-depth discussion with Hugo Chapman, keeper of prints and drawings at the British Museum, about Raphael's wider career, his precocious brilliance, his rivalry with Michelangelo and his influence and legacy, listen to the episode of this podcast from the 22nd of May 2020. You can also read Hugo's preview of the National Gallery show on the website or the app. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. And The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel, and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Tom Seymour, Ben and Gabriella, Kanitra and Tom Henry. See you next week. Bye for now.